that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is God's word. All right. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Let's, uh, let's jump in. As I, as I mentioned, we're going through the entire book of First Peter. And uh, the scripture this evening is uh, full of stuff that makes us nervous, right? Um, I, I always wonder how much people are tuning in when it's being read. Suffering, sin, judgment, those are hard words. Debauchery, that one's a little rough. But then um, this week, orgies, whoo, um, that one was in there. And then uh, preaching to the dead. Um, so there was all sorts of exciting stuff there in that reading. And um, I'm sure I will completely dissatisfy all of you that hope that that's going to be like really prominent tonight because it's, it's there, but it's not really the most prominent part of what we're talking about. But uh, you read that kind of stuff, it can sound like, whew, this is a... This is some, I just kind of want to run. I don't want to. I don't know if I want to hear all this uh, judgment talk. And I, and I just say, be careful when you feel that way about something you read in the Bible, because you might miss something really good under the surface. And I think that is exactly what's happening uh, here again this evening. If you're not careful, you'd miss that this scripture actually taps in on what all humans know we need to understand and actually desire to have clarified. And that is. Um, how do we discern between right and wrong? Um, and how does God engage with that process? That's, that's really at the core of what the scripture is, is getting at, how, how we can discern between right and wrong actions and how God engages in that process. So to answer those questions, um, we'll be examining really our motives uh, and how those work out in this scripture um, the role of our motives, the fruit of right motives, and the God who can change our motivations. And of course, a community of people who have the right motivations, whose actions are shaped by right motivations, ought to be a compelling group of people. Um, they ought to be uh, unique. They ought to stand out, and they ought to affect the, the world in the right way. So the role of our motives. If you notice here in the scripture, there's two key motivations. Um, the first is the will of God. So it says here in our scripture, since Christ suffered, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, because it says now you are living for the will of God. The second is a set of motivations that are tied together under the idea of human passions. And if you get at that word, it's really the appetites. Um, it talks about no longer living for human passions, such as sensuality, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And that last one, lawless idolatry, kind of sums it up in a way. Um, it kind of sums up the idea of idolatries. So what are the motivations? The will of God versus idolatry. And at the very core, the Bible frames the great human, human dilemma in terms of this. It really breaks everything down to this. Is this um, action I'm committing an act of worship to the one true God or is this idolatry. It, everything can be looked at under that rubric. 
We often think this is kind of an ancient problem of statues, etc. You know, that there, people would have an idol set up in their home, perhaps. And the truth is that when you get under the meaning of the concept of, of idolatry, it's far more pervasive than that. Um, we worship idols because we desire something that they offer, the promises that they make to us. In the ancient world, these were often things like rain, fertility, peace, and these are all legitimate things to desire, right? I mean, Tucsonans were thrilled about the last two summers because rain is great. It's good to want rain. Um, but as idols, these things demand our worship, our sacrifice, and our allegiance, and they become far too high of a priority. So are we so different today? What do we desire today? What do we pledge allegiance to, to get today? What do we worship? Uh, the word worship just means worthship. It means what's mo what has the most value to you? What do we give our time, our money, and our headspace to? Tim Keller, who is a pastor in New York City, uh, has an excellent definition of idolatry. He asks this question, what is an idol? And he says, it is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So, what are yours? Right? What absorbs your imagination? And what are the signs of, of an idol? How would you identify your idol? How about this? You're devastated um, if you don't get it. Or you might say statements like this, I would be happy if... You could even put God into the mix of that. If God would give me this, then I could be happy. And whatever you'd fill in that blank with is probably an idol. And once you found them, behold, you found your motivations. Um, th these are the things that are worth the most to you, therefore, they're motivating you. And they, and they really often aren't all that bad. The, the most convincing lies in our, in our lives contain truths, of course. If they were just utterly and obviously false, we wouldn't fall for them. And the most punishing motives are somewhat good. And that's what's so confusing. Their legitimate desires, rain, fertility, meaning, comfort, peace, happiness, pleasure, they're all re you know, realistic and legitimate desires, but they become idols when they are set up above God on our, prior on our priority list. Another definition of idol is this, a good thing that's been elevated into being an ultimate thing. And the truth is, when something becomes the ultimate thing for you, it becomes your master, and you can't even enjoy it anymore. How can this occur? I mean, something like, here, here would be one that we see often, sexual fulfillment. That's good. That's very good. When it becomes your obsession, and we know this, we see this in our world and in the news, um, when it becomes your obsession, you can never get enough of it. It'll drive you to do insane things, and it, and it fails to fulfill the promise that it makes. And the same is true for any disordered desire. As a gift of God, they can be wonderful, but when they become gods, they prove to be vicious masters. So to worship God requires something really profound, um, a turning around. Um, that always includes some suffering, and, that, and our scripture is getting at that. There's a loss, there's a suffering. The scriptural term for this is repentance. Um, the word simply means we must, we must change directions. 
And why would you change directions? Why do people change directions? I was thinking about this, and you know, John Simon and I, we, we can enjoy our, ourselves a good lunch together. It's been a little bit, John. We got to do that. We got to get some lunch. Um, but say I'm, I'm headed toward downtown. I'm going to work. And, uh, and I get a call from John, and John goes, hey, I got freed up. Um, you want to get some lunch? And I say, yes, I want, I, absolutely, I'd love to get lunch with you. And he goes, well, I'm on the east side. Okay, well, I'm going to have to turn around and go the other way, right? This is, that's the visual of repentance. And why do I, why do I turn around? Because something more important or valuable to me has been presented to me. There's there's food, there's lunch that I love, and even more, it's with someone I care about, who I want to be with. And so my previous plan, I will abandon, I will turn the other direction and go toward something that I choose to value more. So I turn for a reason. And that's very important. Repentance is turning in the right direction for the right reason. And it is, of course, possible to turn for the wrong reason. Allow me to illustrate. Um, someone could decide they, they were going to attend church. You all know I'm, I'm a pro-attending church person, right? I, I lead one. It's nice when you're here. Thank you. Um, so I'm all for it, right? But, but somebody could decide to attend church um, so people would see that they are on the right track, that they're a better person, that it would be known, right? So the action is going toward a purpose that is not the worship of God, right? It's actually the worship of themselves and the view that other people have of them. And that is not repentance. Because actually the motive, the aim, has not changed. It's the same. You know, being kind while manipulating someone is wrong. Actions are gauged by their purpose. So why do I say all this? Because Peter is showing us that right motives lead to pleasing God. The Christian is willing to suffer to follow Jesus, he says, because they're motivated by the will of God, meaning that they want to honor and please God. By the way, we always suffer for what we believe in the most. I was talking with a friend of mine about, about gambling the other day. I mean, if, you, if you're very into gambling, I mean, you lose all kinds of money. But the idea of the payoff is driving you, right? Like, but you'll lay down all sorts of time. All sort of, we're always asked to lay things down. The question is, are we laying things down for what's worthwhile? Idols cost us. And the Christian places God's will as a top priority, believing that to move toward God actually will be to move toward something worthwhile. Now, I know there's a lot of stuff going on um, in the name of Christianity, and it can be confusing. I mean, there's, again, same friend I was talking about uh, the gambling with was asking me questions about a pastor that he knew and saying, do you think he's motivated by money? And I told him, I said, I have no idea. I'd have to know the guy. I don't know. It's possible, right? It's possible. And, and as we look out on a world where all sorts of things are done in the name of Christianity, we have to ask if we're going to be a part of a movement or judge the authenticity of a movement, we have to say here is, what is the motive behind this movement? Is, is the motive the will of God or is it the self or some other form of identity or health or something of that nature? What is the driving 
motive. So our motives um, are crucial to understand. Our actions matter, but our motives determine the value of our actions. If there's a God, that God should be first in our hearts. And I hope you can see that anything else that becomes ultimate becomes a slave master. So that said, um, the motive is important, but good motives do indeed create good actions. That's also true. Um, following the right motive will lead to what the Bible tends to call bearing good fruit. And what do I mean by that? Um, Jesus once taught, um, and this makes complete sense, uh, we have a tree out front. This is my illustration. You all walked by it on the way in. Um, and it's got a lot of fruit on it, so much fruit, it's like almost touching the ground, right? What kind of tree is it? Bingo, pomegranate. How do you know? Bingo, there are pomegranates on the tree, right? Um, if I were to say to you, you know the peach tree out front, you'd go, uh, nope, it's not, because peaches are juicy inside and peach-colored, and these things, if you bite them, are horrible, um, because of all the you know, skin and stuff that you've got to deal with. So you have to peel them right, and you have to smack them with a spoon into water, and then all the little um, you know, nodules of goodness um, drop into the water and float to the top, and you eat them, and, and you have a great life. If you don't know how to do that, I'm happy to show you how. It's really fun. But you know it's a pomegranate tree because there's pomegranates. Um, and Jesus said that's such it is with the human life, Right? Um, if, if someone tells you, I, uh, I follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and everything they do seems to be about the, uh, you know, the display of themselves, you might not have somebody who actually is all about the will of Jesus Christ. You got to look at the fruit. Jesus taught us when you're trusting God and you're living for the will of God, it will yield predictable and quality results. And that is that your life will change and reflect Jesus at some point. Here's where he said at Luke 6, uh, 43 to 45, no good tree bears bad fruit. He said, he said a few things like this, but here's one. Nor again does a bad tree bear, bear good fruit. Uh, each tree is known by its fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Now Jesus had just been teaching his disciples things that we were talking about last week. If you were here last week, we were talking about how you, know, you might be blessed even if evil things are said about you, and he's taught us to love our enemies. He's just been talking about these things in his famous and probably repeated Sermon on the Mount. And he had just been in a little bit of a, a headbutt with the Pharisees. Now, Pharisees were a particular religious group, and they were the most, like, impressive, if you will. Um, they were the best-looking religious people of the day. They were the most theologically conservative. They were the most politically committed to having a godly influence um, in their community. But they also happened to be major hypocrites. And the word hypocrite means someone who is like an actor, dressed up and faking it. And they were self-praising, and they would bend the rules in their favor, and they would show off. They would pray on the side of the road very loud so that everybody could see it. And Jesus had a habit of pointing these things out through his, his lifetime. 
And a lot of common people who were, who were ridiculed for their lack of faith found themselves kind of going like, yeah, <laughs> you know, get them. Jesus had been exhibiting as he'd been teaching on the Sermon on the Mount that your motives matter. You can look religious for many reasons, but when you're doing things for him, for the will of God, even when you're reviled, God will honor it. It's pretty on point with what we're seeing in 1 Peter, and he shows them out of your heart, out of the motivations of your heart, precede your actions, every single word. Out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. Think about that. If, if you're if your speaking is a reflection of what's going on in your heart, you know, what does that mean? What do you speak about? How do you speak? Though you can use good choices and actions to serve wrong aims, right aims, right motives will always be followed by good actions. You'll never truly decide to follow Jesus and become a liar because of it. You won't. You will never turn your eyes upon Jesus and then become more greedy as a result or unkind or manipulative or anxious or angry or hateful or self-serving or arrogant. You will never move that direction by following Jesus. You won't. The fruit always indicates another core motivation. Now, right here, though, is a moment for caution. Because we really love to be what one leader of mine called in the past a fruit inspector. This is not just in the church. This is a human trait. We love to kind of look at other people and find the flaws. And go, how are they doing? You know, how do they measure up? We tend to be very attentive to others' issues. But often, um, if not usually, when the Bible is speaking this way, it's for the cause of self-assessment. Now, not here, in, in, this, in this moment, Jesus actually said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So I'm not, I'm not saying you can never gauge another movement or something like that by its fruit. You should. But often, individuals and communities are supposed to be looking at themselves and gauging their motives. Now, motives are entirely God's department, right? We can only see fruit. God has access to the motives. But I want to read this whole portion of 2 Corinthians 5 to you, um, partially because it illustrates my last point, but it's actually going to speak to one other thing that I think has happened to a lot of us when we've, you know, engaged or, or bumped into fruit inspecting. It says, examine yourselves. This is first, or 2 Corinthians 5. This is now the Apostle Paul. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test? So he's saying, look at yourself. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, that we may seem to have failed. Paul actually has been criticized by them, which is why he's speaking of himself failing this test. He says, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We're glad when we're weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that, the God, is, that God has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul says, he's telling you, test yourselves. And then he says this little thing about the role of people in authority, not to tear down, but to build up. The authority the Apostle Paul had, he says, was for building up, not for tearing down. Um, 
And that's true. If that's true for a founder of the Christian church, how much more true should it be for each one of us that when we look at the lives of others, our goal isn't to tear them down and to see if we can get them out. Our goal should be to build them up, to help and protect. So we should let the authority of our words and the lives of others be used for building them up, not tearing them down. And I'm, I'm proud to say, I've served with the elders of our church here. We've had some hard, hard cases. We've had some hard stuff. But I've seen their hearts, and we'll talk about this kind of stuff more next week. Actually, elders are part of our topic next week. But I've seen a heart to build up, not to tear down, even in the hardest moments. So the goal of, of, of looking at people's lives is not to see who can we get out, but it's how can we help, how can we build up. And then amidst that, we also need to be patient. Romans 2, uh, Paul says another little thing. He teaches us that we need to realize God's patience toward us. He said, God's, the richness of God's kindness, his forbearance and patience is there. And he says, we are to realize it's there so, because God's kindness leads us to repentance. Remember, repentance is turning a different direction for a different reason. God's kindness is what makes us want to turn to him. And if God gets us to change our motivations, if he, he gets us to repent by being patient, how much more should we be patient with each other? I think, again, of this pomegranate tree. Um, we got it from Trees for Tucson. So when you get a Trees for Tucson tree, it's about a foot tall or maybe foot and a half. It's a little tiny thing. And we planted it where we used to meet for church and we moved it. We, we took it out of its planter and we shocked it. We traumatized it entirely because it lost all of its leaves when it shouldn't have. And I thought it died. And we planted it out here and it lived barely. And then it was in this location where the air conditioner dripped onto it and it all of a sudden just went crazy. And then we saw that, and we're like, whoa, and we actually diverted a little tube so the dripping goes right down to the, right to the perfect spot, and it, it's just going nuts out there. It's like, it fell over last year. It had so much fruit. When it rained, it fell over. I had to tie it to the building. Um, so it's producing fruit big time. It gets water. The soil's good, right? But at one time, it looked very small, and at one time, it looked like it had died. And like our tree's journey, I think many of us have similar journeys in our walk with Jesus. Many of us have been through some traumatic stuff, various forms. I know a lot of our stories, and it's, a, it's rough, right? We've been through some stuff. We haven't just been on this, like, wow, like, trajectory of just, like, it's takeoff and landing. I mean, it's, it's hard stuff has come our way. Some of, that's, some of that's just the way it is in spiritual places. Like, when you're following, when you're following Jesus, things don't always go easy, and we have to keep this in mind as we walk with one another, that, that bearing fruit, the changes that new motivations can bring, some, can, can take some time. It doesn't just happen. And we need to bear with one another, right? The other thing to consider is how much Jesus is asking of each person and how much we should compare ourselves to others. Peter, who's writing this, um, there was a unique moment with him and, and him and Jesus and the Apostle John. It's at the end of John's letter. And, uh, and Jesus turns to Peter and essentially tells him, you're going to die. <laughs> it's, uh, he says, you're gonna, following me, you're going to die. That's my paraphrase. 
And Peter looks over at John, his friend, and he says, what about him? And Jesus, this is again, my, this is my paraphrase. Jesus goes, it's none of your business. <laughs> or he says, what's it to you? You follow me. I don't know how much comparison we should do with the lives of others, but this leads us to abandon the comparison game when we see this. Just because I can do X or I have enough st- you know, stamina to go to the death or whatever doesn't mean God is, is, isn't pleased with someone else who can't do the same thing. So you have a high capacity for high levels of obedience. Incredible, good. Someone else, though, may not. And it doesn't mean they aren't doing as much as God has asked them to do. Jesus gave a parable about the kingdom, about a sower that, that threw seeds on the ground. And he talks about how some of those seeds are eaten and some of them die. But even the ones that, that enter into good soil and produce fruit, he says some of them produce 30, 60, 100 fold. What does that mean? Like every Christian isn't going to have the same life and the same level of productivity. And that's okay. I mean, I think we, I would encourage you be as productive as you can. But we shouldn't look down on those who, who, whose lives are different. C.S. Lewis, to put this into a little context, if you don't know who C.S. Lewis is, he, um, famous author, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and such, and he used to uh, have, he was on a radio show because he was a, a very well-known convert from atheism to Christianity. And he was on a, on a radio show in England and a book was made out of his radio broadcast called Mere Christianity. And in it, he was working out um, some of the same idea. And he has this little quote with his usual kind of creative examples. But he says, human beings judge one another by their external actions, but God judges them by their moral choices. And that is, that's, is to say their motives, their deeper moral decisions. He said, when a neurotic who has a pathological horror of cats forces himself to pick up a cat for some good reason. It's quite possible that in God's eyes, he's shown more courage than a healthy man may have shown in winning the Victoria Cross. Now, the Victoria Cross is like, uh, it's like the Medal of Valor. Uh, it, it's, it's like the highest honor in British society. He's saying, perhaps this person with the pathological fear of cats who picks up a cat has followed Jesus more than somebody who won the Victoria Cross. Or, or, he says, when a man who's been perverted from youth, taught that cruelty is the right thing to do, does some tiny little kindness, or refrains from some cruelty he may have committed, and thereby perhaps risks being sneered at by all of his companions, he may, in God's eyes, be doing more than you and I would if we gave up life itself for a friend. He was using some pretty colorful examples, right? But do you get the idea that you don't know how much it might cost for the person with the pathological fear of cats to pick up the cat, right? You don't know. You're not in their head. You don't know how hard it might have been for them to trust God in that moment. Maybe we should be careful, right, with judging one another. And maybe being the wonderful, sacrificial, polite person, isn't that you know, all that demanding for you or for me, though debatable, uh, for me, I think. But maybe it's not that difficult. Maybe it's even a little self-serving, right, to be that way. While our sister in Christ with the pathological horror of cats or the disability or the trauma response or the years of abuse is trusting Jesus and walking in repentance more deeply than us when they just do something very, to, to, to you or me, small. 
This is why we need to be careful with our judgments and be far more attentive to our own motives. Be careful judging others. Now, Peter also, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this, that he tells us that we, our peers may not appreciate the change that happens when we turn toward God in repentance. That, that, that may happen. Um, some will and, and some won't. And you might be surprised who's who. And many of you in this room that, that I know, and I'm proud of you for this, have a lot of friends who aren't devout Christians. Um, some of you here aren't even sure if you are Christians. And you're in circles of people who definitely aren't Christians. And, and Peter says this thing that in you know, the past time, he's saying kind of, once you've heard about Jesus, realize you've had plenty of time in your life for all of the, all of the you know, wild activities, the sensualities, the passions, the drunkenness, the parties, the idolatries. Um, and some people, when you change, when you start following Jesus, might be surprised that you, you don't join them in the same, he calls it, flood of debauchery. And they'll malign you, but they'll give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. There really is a call to leave things done for the wrong reasons behind. And, and notice something, Peter's audience, he assumes all of them have been there and done that. These aren't all people that had the squeaky clean lives. These are people who had been in that position. And he's saying, look, you did that. You had a past and you've been there. But from now on, let's, let's move on. And some people are going to criticize you and, and that's going to be hard. Here at Mission, I think um, one of the flaws we might have, if I could just speak to the long timers here, is we deeply don't want to be a judgmental church, right? We really don't. I think I know some of us very well. I know I don't. I tend to gather people who don't. Um, so sometimes we don't, we don't press for people to follow Jesus as, as hard as we should. And I don't mean to be hard on people, but to really say, look, this is worth it. This is the call. And here's, so here's a maxim that we should all probably adopt. If our unbelieving friends don't notice any real change in our motivations, and if they don't see any change in our lives, we probably do need to examine ourselves. We really should. And when you do change, it can be kind of jarring for folks, and you may get pushback. Um, but also, you might be surprised. Here's a couple little stories from my life. In high school, I was in kind of the trouble group um, and we were, we were kind of goofballs, but we pushed the boundaries. And I was really in this battle of motivations. And I had this one friend, and at a, I remember at a party, uh, something was getting passed around, and I was at the point where I was like, I was like convicted that I shouldn't do that. I really didn't know how, how to, to be in this space. And so something's getting passed around, and I said, no, uh, that's cool, I'm, I'm good. And the dude who was passing around, was he started kind of pushing on me and kind of going like, hey... Um, Oh you, yeah, you're too you're too good for this stuff, or like what are you, you know what are you some kind of I think he even said like are you are you religious or something, and my friend Chris actually stood up I cannot quote him because it was quite vulgar, um, but he stood up in front of the guy and was just like basically said hey no he's not being an idiot like we are and why would you give him a hard time for that leave him alone, here's the guy now I kid you not my mom was like terrified that I was hanging out with this kid he actually respected me though. You might be surprised. Like the ones who push back against you might, you know, might be the cleaner looking ones. This guy, this guy was the one who was like the worst, but he actually was like, no, I, I respect you. When I look back at that, I think he might have been closer to the kingdom. He could see his own foolishness. 
And when somebody opted out, he was like, I respect that. Um, I worked in car audio. There's a pretty rough crowd in car audio. I did that for, for years. And there was a dude who was always pushing my buttons. He, was, he would always be like, hey, you want to go out with us afterward? And there were all sorts of reasons that wasn't a good move. And I knew all about it. So I always, nah, I'm good. And there was another guy who was a salesman who, who never tried to influence me personally. He hardly gave me the time of day. Always, you know, button-up shirt, great manners. Um, the guy who was always pushing my buttons was kind of the rough crowd guy. Same thing. He would, he would kind of give me a hard time. But then at the end of the day, he'd say, hey, man, oh, yeah, you're, you're, you're good. We, we were friends. We stayed friends years after I worked there. The guy, the salesman, who was always well-dressed and well-spoken, he learned that I was not a pushy salesman. And I wasn't because my faith influenced me. I just, there was part of me, and I kid you not, it really did. Because when, I mean, I remember one time, uh, there was a lady that came in, she had a car full of kids, and she admitted to me that she didn't have enough money, but she just wanted a brand new stereo because she just, you know, for some reason, and I actually was like, look, these are really overpriced. (laughs) Like, don't go to Walmart. You know, like, don't, don't, you got a car full of kids, don't do this. And this guy, though, when I would, when I would not be pushy, he would swoop in, he would steal my sales, he kind of figured out my weaknesses, and he would like prey on it. And he was a punk, but he looked like the clean, you know, respectable one. Why do I say this? Because be careful with judging just by outward appearances, the people you get pushback from might surprise you. Some of the ones you think are going are gonna to hate you might not. They might respect you. And some of the ones you think are going to respect you might not. They might give you pushback. It's not quite as black and white as we'd like it to be. And God is the judge of this. It, it talks here about how God's going to judge the living and the dead. You know what? That sounds really scary until you're on the, the back end of unjust criticism or abuse or betrayal. All of a sudden, when you've, when you've been unjustly treated, you go, I really hope there's a God that judges this out someday who can see the motives. When you're in a situation where somebody's motives are so thick you can't tell what's what, you start saying, I hope there's a God who can see through this mess and parse this out and do justice. My main encouragement to you, though, is to be faithful. People, people may ridicule you, um, especially if you've, if you've got that past, if you've got that life for, for you as like anything goes, and you end up saying, you know what, that was pretty toxic. I think I need to reorient myself to God. It's true, though. There, you'll get some pushback. It's not easy, but, but would you, wouldn't you rather be moving toward the God who created you, who knows you deeply, who loves you, than toward the type of person who would give you a hard time for trying to change. Who are you going to trust? Who's going to get to shape your life? For some of us, we're not even sure, right, with our own motivations because they're kind of a tangled web. And this is where we have to return back to, like, if it's up to us, if it's all on us to get our motivations right, good luck, right? Like, the heart, the Bible says, is deceptive and nobody can understand it. it's true. And by that, it doesn't mean like, oh, we're all the most terrible people in the world. But it means, I mean, have you ever noticed yourself talk yourself into something? Have you ever done that? Where you can just work, you can work yourself right around to doing whatever you wanted to do because you can justify it somehow. And that's how we work. 
God can actually change our motivations. The last part of the scripture is the hardest part to understand. Um, and I, I really, I want to avoid the rabbit hole here. It says, but here's what it says. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Um, I really want you to hear that the gospel was preached to these people and that they got a new spiritual life. Um, the whole preaching to those who are dead part, I'm going to acknowledge that for a second, but just say, believe me, if you had Peter in the room and you wanted to talk about that, I think he'd go, no, 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 that's not the point. <laughs> like, he'd probably clear it up and that'd be really great if he could, but because um, nobody's really, you read all the scholarly stuff and there are like 10 different opinions out there. But, you know, some, some view this as referring to Christians who, like Jesus, had to suffer in this life, but hoped in God's spiritual restoration, that they died, but they, you know, they died like everybody else, but they had hope um, in Christ. Um, some would not exclude that, but would include those who died looking forward to Jesus in the past, though they didn't actually get to see him and therefore say, I believe in Jesus. Um, and some would view this, and I think this is where it goes a bit too far, as like a purgatory scenario where people got a second chance, that like all humans of all time, um, that God kind of came back to them and said, hey, let's give this another shot. I'm going to tell you now. And they, you know, they kind of have a post-death um, second chance. And, and I think that one's pretty unlikely. That doesn't square with anything else uh, the Apostle Peter says, or Paul, or any, any other apostles. But Let's assume the possibility of those first two views and highlight the key, and that is this, that the hope is in what we call the gospel. And the gospel is this, it's the good news of Jesus. Um, and the good news is this, that we're, as, we're, we're sinful, we're, we're utterly tarnished. Our motivations, like when you get down to the bottom of the idea of sin, there's several words for sin, and one of those um, carries the idea of perversion. And what perversion is, when you really get at it, is that your orientation is off. Like you should be a straight line, but you're crooked. You're a little bit, you know, when you, when you try to do the right thing, you just can't quite get it right because of something inside of yourself. That's your motivations. How many of us can really say we're not selfish to some degree, right? I, I cannot tell you that even right now, speaking in front of you about the Bible, that there isn't some part of me that likes for you to nod your head it feels good. It's selfish, right? We deal with that. So, so be, despite all of that, despite our unworthiness, that God paid the ultimate price by coming into this world in Jesus Christ and that he has loved and accepted us more than we ever could have hoped or imagined and far more than we deserve. Those things are both simultaneously true. Our motivations are all askew. And Jesus, who had the right motivations, came in and loved us and sacrificed his very self for us. And when you see that, when you see that that's true for you, it can enable you to turn to him and say, this is better than all the other things, all the other idols that draw me to them. They, they're slave masters. They overpromise and underdeliver. He promises and delivers in full. He's laid his life down for me. He's offering full love, full acceptance, redemption. He tells me out in, the, in the very beginning and all the way through the Bible. I mean, here's the Apostle Peter saying, look, Christ suffered in the flesh. You're going to suffer. The idols tell you everything's going to be great. And then you go and give them your heart and you suffer. Jesus tells you, you will suffer, 
but it's going to be it's going to be okay. He's honest. He tells the truth. He loves you, accepts you. He he gives you an accurate appraisal of what it's going to be like to follow him. He doesn't trick you. And to see that graciousness, his that he would lay his life down and that he would be utterly honest with you. Seeing that can lead you to say this is this is God I'm dealing with here. He's sacrificial, he's loving, he's merciful, he's forgiving, and he tells me the truth. And it can turn you to following after him. It can change your heart. It can get to the bottom of your motivations and unearth you. That's why for Christians, we always end worship with acknowledging the, the, the critical story of Jesus Christ and how he's laid his life down for us. Here's the thing. Here's the beautiful thing. Jesus, who came to the earth with all the right motivations, received a punishment of a criminal. That's unfair. But he did that for a reason. He did it for us so that we, with twisted and tangled motivations, can come and receive his perfect record on our behalf and be, and be made right, be reoriented to God and received by God. It, this, this story is the one that can change your heart to Jesus and help you move in the right direction. When you come and feed on him, and if you feel unworthy, but you say, I wish I, wish I could please God, but I'm, but I'm so unworthy, this is very much for you. If you can see your debauchery, if you can say, like, that is what I do in my heart, then just allow his kindness to lead you into more and more repentance. Some of us are quick to assume we aren't welcome, but often when you can see your unworthiness, you are more ready than anyone else. But it's also good to ask the question, what drives me? You know, Do I desire to be viewed as righteous? Is my hope to get my slate clean so I can go and do whatever I want to do and not feel guilty? Some, you know, and always in a room like this, need to ask yourself these questions. Examine yourself. Really do. Because at this table, we're confronted with a good and suffering Savior, and and you don't want to take advantage of him. You want to come to him because he's good, and he's worth it to affirm your love for him and ask for his help. And to all who receive his work on their behalf, his kindness, he guarantees the power of his resurrection. And the power of his resurrection is this, that, that just as he, at the end of the scripture, it says, so that we might live in the, way, in the spirit the way that God does, Jesus overcame death itself. Death, the scriptures tell us, is what we deserve for the, the orientation of our crooked hearts. He overcame it. Since he overcame it, if we put our trust in him, we, in him, can be carried all the way to the end and overcome it as well. From there, he commissions us to continue following his example, to to perhaps suffer in the flesh, which is what the scripture said, but to do it going out and loving others, laying, laying your life down, following Jesus in such a way that you will find it pays off in ways that the idolatry never did. Try him. Try following him. You'll see. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. He said, every time that you eat this, remember me. Why do we need to remember him? Because the motivations of our heart take about, I don't know, six and a half days to go right back off track. 
Come back to him over and over. And he takes the wine from the table and he says, this is the blood of a new covenant, a new promise that's sealed in my blood. And it's for the forgiveness of all of your sins. All that, that misconstrued motivation of yours, he'll cleanse it like it never happened. And he said, drink this and remember me and declare my death until I return. And that return is where his resurrection power actually, actually cleanses you entirely, cleanses this world of all, all the broken motivations when he comes and he makes things right. And then he sends us out into this world to go and make disciples, which is simply to tell people the good news of what he's done for you. So the invitation is to come and receive him by faith. All you need is just a little bit of faith. But do examine yourselves. Because he knows your motivations. He knows our hearts. I'm going to pray for us now. Um, We're going to enter into this time where we are going to have some singing. Some people will give in the back if they are so inclined. That's the way you support God's work here. I will serve the Lord's Supper. And we're going to kind of go through this time of just pointing our souls up to Jesus, reflecting on what's been said. If you're a believer in Jesus, welcome to his table and sing his praises. And if you're here as, as an observer, we respect that so much. And we're so glad you're here. After that, we're going to have dinner together. And this is where we continue in the idea of this kind of new resurrection identity, and we just enjoy uh, time and good food. So I will pray. I'm also going to leave two minutes of silence. That two minutes is a time for you to reflect on what this means for you. And if there's anything um, you need to examine with God, any, any motivations of the heart, anything you need to process through or ask God, um, that's a time for you to pray. So... I'll pray for us and leave that space for you. Father in heaven, I'm grateful to be here with these people. Most of all, we're grateful for the profound work you've done on the cross. Every time I get up here to try to explain it, I find myself um, overwhelmed by how intricate it is, but then again, how altogether profound it is. Thank you that you entered into our situation, that you took on our our humanity, that you lived a life we couldn't live, and that you willingly took the punishment we deserve. What's that about? Please help us to offer to you our broken lives, our twisted motivations, to turn to you to see how much you're worth and to follow after you, and allow you to, to transform us, and help us to be patient with each other along the way. Help us to celebrate every little victory, every little act of obedience. So God, as we pray now, guide us. um, Illuminate our hearts with your grace. Show us your mercy. We know you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we come boldly before you.